Welcome to the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast, a primitive Baptist ministry declaring the good news of the finished work of salvation by grace alone. This weekly radio program is brought to you by Elder Joe Nettles, pastor of Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church in Caledonia, Mississippi, and Elder David Wise, pastor of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We now invite you to stay tuned for our message this morning. Good morning and welcome again to the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast. This is Elder David Wise here with you this morning, and we'd invite you, if you're able to come worship with us in person in North Mississippi, we'd invite you to come see us at Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church outside of Ackerman, Mississippi. Go check out our website too, macedonia-pbc.org. And you can also go see Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church outside Caledonia, Mississippi. And both of our churches meet for Sunday morning public worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., and then also we have a joint meeting on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. in Starkville, Mississippi at the La Quinta Inn. So we would love to meet you in person. If you are not in our area, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoy our program, you can go to our website at gospel-of-grace.com and you can get all of our past messages, subscribe to our podcast, find a church that's closer to you, and also be sure and send us an email if you enjoy the program and let us know through what medium you listen to to our messages. We would certainly love to have that feedback from you. This morning, we'd like to bring you the second installment of a message that was delivered recently, Does God Love the Whole World, Election and John 3.16, as we try to rightly divide and reconcile the teaching of Scripture that God loved a people before the foundation of the world, and distinctly chose that people, but yet at the same time, John 3.16 appears to say that God loved the whole world. So we want to consider that with you this morning, and this will be the second of three installments of that message that will air for you here on the program. We'd ask you to stay tuned for that message right after the song. May God bless you today.
So then next we want to consider the question, is there anyone the Lord hates? Is there anyone the Lord hates? Well, we've actually seen already that God hated Esau. All of mankind has fallen in sin and not worthy of God's love. If we read John three sixteen in isolation and don't rightly divide it, we could say, well, you know what? God loves everybody. God doesn't hate anyone. Well, a rightly dividing and studying of the scriptures doesn't teach that. God did hate Esau, and he didn't just simply love Esau less. That verse is quoted from Malachi chapter 1, and it says of Esau and the wicked people of Edom, representing the non-elect, he said, These are the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Okay, so this is not that Esau just, God didn't love him as much as Jacob, but God still loved Esau. He just didn't love him as much. No, it's hatred, okay? The people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. God has indignation against them. And let's look at a few other people in Scripture that it's described that God hates. You know, God is love. God is characterized by love. But God is also righteousness, and he hates iniquity. God hates iniquity. So therefore, Psalm chapter 5 and in verse 5, God hates all the workers of iniquity. Psalm chapter 11 and verse 5, God hates the wicked and those that love violence. God's angry with the wicked every day. The sacrifice, the way, and the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination before God. We're told seven things in Proverbs chapter 6 that God hates. A proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that run to shed mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, uh, he that sows discord among the brethren. God's a God of love, but God is also holy and righteous, and he will not absolve the wicked. He will not ignore iniquity. And God has such a righteousness in his character that he hates iniquity. He hates sin. So there are things that the Lord hates. So therefore, the next question is, if God supposedly loves everyone, but there are some people that he hates, if God loves everyone, then how does anyone go to hell? If God loves everyone, and the scriptures make it very clear, there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's the reason we have eternal security. But if God loved everyone, then at what point does God cease to love you? Or the other end of that spectrum is, are you going to tell me that God sends someone that he loved to hell? Well, I'll tell you, if that's the way that God deals with love, I'm not all that fired up about if he loves me, okay? If God's content to send someone that he loves to hell because they didn't act right, because they didn't believe, then that really diminishes the love of God. No, of course not. We certainly can't say that God still loves the people that he sends to hell, okay? So if God does not love the people that he sends to hell, then what caused that love to cease? What caused that love to be removed from that person? Well, we would have to say it was their unbelief, right? If God loved you and you have supposedly an opportunity to be saved all the way up to your dying breath, you choose to not believe in the Lord and therefore God's going to send you to hell because you chose not to believe. Well, your work of unbelief has now ceased God's love for you. But that stands in direct contradiction to the fact there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So this just serves to prove that God's love is an everlasting love. Okay, God cannot change. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God cannot change. God's love is an everlasting love. So therefore, there is no action that we can perform that can separate us from God's love. 
Simply put, if God loves the entire world and nothing can separate you from God's love and God cannot change and God's will is always going to be done, then everyone that God loved is going to be in heaven. And that's what we believe. That's what we believe in the doctrine of election, that everyone that God loved is who God saved, who Jesus Christ saved on the cross, and everyone that God loved is who's going to be with him in heaven. But when you take this idea that God loved everyone, but now there's something that separates you from God's love, that somehow your unbelief causes God to hate you and send you to hell, no, God forbid. That is totally diminishing the love of God, and it just undermines the entire character of God. God can't change. God can't fail. God can't be discouraged. Everyone that his blood was shed for they are paid for. Their sins were forgiven. They were perfected forever. God cannot change. He cannot fail. So when we see all of these implications of the successful work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if we say that God loved everyone, he died for everyone, but everyone doesn't end up in heaven, then we have caused some serious problems. First of all, there's people that have been separated from God's love right? God loved them, but now he doesn't love them because he sent them to hell. People have been separated from God's love. God has changed because there's a person that he did love, but now he doesn't love them. God's been made a liar because Jesus Christ promised he wouldn't lose any that were given to him. And if he died for the whole world, then he lost somebody. Not only did he lose them, but his blood was shed in vain. His blood wasn't sufficient to pay for their sins. God's sovereignty has been questioned because his will has been overthrown by the will of man. We just see all of these problems that arise when we say that God's not successful, okay? God is successful in the work of salvation. He declared on the cross, John chapter 19 and verse 30, it is finished. He came in this world to save his people from their sins. He did save them, and all of God's children be, will be with him in heaven. But when we take the stance that God loves everyone and God died for everyone, there are no other implications of that other than people have been separated from God's love, God has changed, Jesus' blood was shed in vain, and God's sovereignty has been undermined. You see, Jesus Christ had to have saved and loved the exact same definite group that was given him on the cross. And that definite group is who we see in Romans chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate. And that same group that were foreknown and predestinated and elected were called, justified, and shall be glorified. The exact same definite group has to be the exact same people from start to finish because God can't love somebody on the cross and hate them on the judgment day. You see, Jesus had to have loved and saved the exact same definite group of people on the cross from start to finish, okay? Because there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Anyone that doesn't believe in a universal atonement actually believes in a limited atonement. What I mean by that is there are very few people that say that all of mankind that's ever been born, that ever has lived or ever will live, is going to be in heaven with the Lord. There's very few people that are universalists and say everybody's going to heaven. Okay, Scriptures make it very clear that there is going to be a people that are going to be banished from the presence of God in judgment and eternal torment in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Okay, scriptures make that very clear. Therefore, if the atonement is not universal, then the atonement has to be limited. Okay, if God didn't save everyone, then the atonement is limited. So just about everyone believes in a limited atonement, that Jesus only saved a smaller portion of mankind than everybody. 
okay? It was limited in scope. So therefore, sometimes people speak negatively of the Primitive Baptists because we say we believe in a limited atonement. Well, pretty much everybody believes in a limited atonement, okay? If you don't think that everyone is going to heaven, then you do believe in a limited atonement. Therefore, what is the basis of the limitation of that atonement, okay? There are only two options for the limitation of Christ's atonement, and those two options are Christ's atonement is limited by either the choice of man or the choice of God. The first option undermines the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice, and that's what we've been discussing. If God loved everyone and he died for everyone, and the choice of man is what limits the atonement, in other words, God wanted to save everybody. He died for everybody. He loved everybody. He wanted to save everybody. But if everyone's not saved, then God's not the problem in that equation, is he? No, God wanted everybody saved, supposedly. So how are all men not saved? It's because man wouldn't get on board. It's because man wouldn't believe. because man wouldn't act right. So we have God wanting to save people, but man's stubbornness is limiting the sovereignty of God, which is just foolishness anyway. So the real problem with this is we are limiting the atonement of Jesus Christ by the choice of man, and therefore we are undermining the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. And what that means is that God actually died for someone that's not going to go to heaven. Okay, God loves someone and died for someone on the cross that's not going to go to heaven because he didn't actually atone for their sins. Therefore, there is the choice of man to not believe in him is more powerful than the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. God forbid, God forbid. Are you seeing all of these problems when we have a different group that God loved and died for that is a different group than who he actually saved and are going to be with him in heaven? We can't say that God loved everybody and he died for everybody. Otherwise, everybody has to be in heaven, okay? The other option in the limitation of Christ's atonement is the choice of God, the choice of God. Therefore, what is the basis for the limitation of Christ's atonement? It's not the effectiveness of Christ's work. God wanted to save everybody. Man wouldn't believe, and man's will overruled the blood of Jesus. No, the atonement is limited by the choice of God, by election, right? That God chose a people before the foundation of the world, and he redeemed and he saved everyone to whom was given him. So, primitive Baptists believe in election, and we believe in limited atonement. Just about everyone believes in limited atonement, but we disagree about the basis of that limitation. And if we say God loved everyone, he died for everyone, but everyone's not going to be in heaven, then we are undermining the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if I can't have confidence in Jesus' effectiveness in saving someone that slipped through his fingers and went to hell, then how can I have any assurance or eternal security that he saved me properly? You see, we just can't go down that rabbit hole. The same definite group that God loved is the same group that he saved, is the same group of the elect that will be with him at the end of time, okay? Now, we want to arrive at John chapter 3, verse 16, and discuss, for God so loved the world in context, okay? John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I think that we've hopefully shown you that world does not mean all men without exception everywhere in Scripture. I hope you can also see many of the problems when we say that God loved the world, he died for the world, but some of those people are not going to be in heaven. 
That is undermining the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. It's making God to change. It's denying the word of God. Just a multitude of problems when we make that assertion. So therefore, how do we reconcile, for God so loved the world, with the doctrine of unconditional election? So first of all, we have to consider John chapter 3 in context, right? Jesus Christ is discussing with Nicodemus at night here in John chapter 3. And the main topic is the new birth. Okay, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And Nicodemus, like pretty much every Jew at that time, believed that God only loved the natural born circumcised lineage of the Jews. They viewed all non-Jews, all Gentiles and Samaritans as dogs, unclean, and they did not believe that God loved those dogs. They did not believe that God loved anybody but the Jews. And he is discussing with Nicodemus about the new birth. He says, marvel not at this. You must be born again. You have to be born again to see the kingdom. You have to be born again to enter into the kingdom. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whether it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. What he's saying there is the wind shows the effects of the new birth. Just as the wind blows a leaf, you can say the wind was there because the leaf was blown, right? So he's saying that there are evidences of the new birth outside the Jewish nation because Nicodemus at this time believed that God only loved the Jews. And he's saying, look, God loves a people much broader than the Jews. We find in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that God's family is a multitude so vast that man can't number it. It's innumerable out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. So therefore, Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus, look, God's family is way bigger than the Jews. God's family is out of the whole world. There are people that exhibit evidences of the new birth, people that exhibited the evidences of the wind of the new birth in their heart outside of the Jewish nation. There are evidences of God's children in the entire world. This is really the same lesson that God tried to teach Peter as he was going to preach to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Peter was a devout Jew as well, and he was very proud of the fact that nothing common or unclean had ever entered his lips, and he also had never interacted with those unclean Gentiles. But then God sends him a vision and says, you know what, what I've cleansed, don't call common or unclean. He goes and he preaches to Cornelius, and what is Peter's realization? What's Peter's realization when he goes to Cornelius? Acts chapter 10, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is not a respecter of persons, but in every nation that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. You know, Peter had that same realization that I think Nicodemus was still struggling with that he probably didn't understand when he left his interaction with Jesus. Peter had a realization that, wow, God's family is way bigger than the Jews. It's not about lineage. God's not a respecter of persons. It's not about God only loving one nation, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. In other words, in the entire world, God has people that have been born again, that exhibit fruit of the Spirit, and, and are among God's family. God loves a people broader than just the natural lineage of the Jews. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, skithin, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the word world here in John chapter 3 and verse 16 does not mean the world without exception, as in every person that's ever lived. Instead, it's saying that God loves all men without distinction, without regard to nationality. And this was a tremendous 
jaw dropper for Nicodemus, no doubt. Okay, we just kind of read over it. Oh, God loved the world. But this would have been a jaw-dropping statement for a Pharisee like Nicodemus to hear that God loves a people beyond the Jews. And notice this, whosoever believeth is not an invitation for you to gain eternal life. Instead, we see in the scriptures that those that believe already have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. If you believe, you already have eternal life. It's evidence you have already passed from death unto life. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is not saying if you believe, then you can choose to go to heaven and gain eternal life. No, what he's saying is for those that show the evidences of the wind of the new birth blowing in their life, those that show the evidences that are already saved, they believe, they believe in Jesus, then you take confidence even if you're not a Jew, right? Who's this message for? This message is for people that are not Jews, <laughs> to know that God loves you too. God loves the world. God has the people of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And if you believe in the Lord, this is not an invitation for you to gain eternal life. This is an assurance that you already have eternal life because Jesus has already saved you. Jesus says in the two verses leading up to John chapter 3 and verse 16, beginning in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is not an invitation for anyone that wants to believe to gain eternal life. Anyone just can't choose to believe. You can only believe after you've been born again. You can only believe after you've been given faith in the new birth. So belief is not the cause of eternal life. Belief is an evidence that you already have eternal life. Belief is an evidence that you have already been born again by the Spirit of God. Think about this example from Numbers chapter 21. Who was this serpent lifted up for salvation for? It wasn't lifted up for the entire world. It was lifted up for God's chosen people. It was lifted up for God's chosen people that were alive, and they chose that were alive to look on the serpent and receive a deliverance in their life here. They would have physically died if they didn't look up on the serpent. They chose to look up on the serpent, and their life was saved. So God is not offering these Old Testament Israelites an opportunity to go to heaven. He's offering them deliverance and peace and salvation in their life here from the fiery sting of a serpent in our New Testament application from the fiery sting and conviction of sin. You have a salvation and peace and deliverance from that sting of conviction of sin when you choose to place your faith in Jesus and believe on the Lord. But notice who are the people that were called upon to look upon the serpent. Moses didn't call the Assyrians to look on the serpent. He didn't call the Egyptians. He didn't call the Gentiles. Who were called to look up on the serpent, figuratively look up on Jesus for salvation? Who were called? God's people. God's people who were already alive. You can't look upon the serpent if you're dead. So if you look and you believe, what is that evidence of? It's evidence that you're already alive, right? So therefore, we see another example that the evidences of salvation, such as belief, are not how we go to heaven. They are evidences that we are already saved. And that's really the main context of John chapter 3 and in verse 16. In the whole chapter, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about the new birth. The new birth is necessary for salvation. The new birth is necessary to go to heaven. The new birth is necessary for you to follow Jesus in discipleship. But you know what? There are evidences of the new birth outside of the Jewish nation. There are evidences of belief in the entire world. So Jesus was not teaching Nicodemus that God loves every person that's ever lived in this world. The scriptures don't uphold that. Instead, he was teaching Nicodemus in the context in John chapter 3 that God loves the entire world without distinction. 
He loves a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. God loves a people among the Gentiles just as much as he loves his children among the Jews. Wonderful grace of If you enjoy the messages you hear on the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast, we invite you to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. To find a Primitive Baptist Church near you, to listen to past messages online, and to find further contact information, you can visit our website at gospel-of-grace.com. You can also find our program on iTunes under podcast, entitled The Gospel of Grace, a Primitive Radio Broadcast. If you listen and enjoy our program, we would love to hear from you. You may contact us by email at gospelofgracepb at gmail.com. This program is produced by Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church, 40283 Wolf Road, Caledonia, Mississippi, and Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, 11 Staten Road, on Highway 15, just north of Ackerman, Mississippi. We would love for you to come and worship with us each Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We invite you to tune in again next week for another message from the Gospel of Grace. Until next time, we pray God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling.